Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. How do we understand and know about the origins of the universe? How do we share that information to more skeptical audiences? And how can we use astronomy and astrophysics to inspire awe and wonder? Our conversation this week was with Ethan Siegel, who is an astrophysicist, author, and science communicator, and author of the book Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe. He's also a regular contributor to Big Think and Forbes.com for his blog Starts with a Bang. This conversation was recorded on February 16th, 2021. One of the things that that I want to start with is you know your your blog and your Twitter handle both start with a bang and you look a lot at at sort of the first few moments of of after after the big bang. One of the things that I think we wonder about, particularly those of us who are are lay people, is how do we even know what happened in those first few moments after the big bang theory you know, after the after the big bang cosmology? We you know this is we don't have. We don't have time machines yet, but how can we find this out and understand what's happening here in the universe? You know, I think that's that's a very good question, right? Because for me, that's that's the key to showing that you understand something is when you say, okay, it's not just what we know where you ask a question and someone gives an answer. It's what do we know and how do we know it? That's that's such that important step for science is, is how do we figure it out? Why do we draw that conclusion and not some other conclusion? So what we do is we say, okay, look, I'm going to take the evidence we have, the observational evidence we have, and I'm going to say, what are the different theories that are all that are self-consistent, that explain the data, that are consistent with all the things we've already observed? And then I go and say, okay, well, these different theories, these different ideas, they're going to have different consequences for how certain things are going to play out in the universe. So early on, for example, we said, okay, we see other galaxies, we see that they have stars in them, and we know how stars work. So when we see these galaxies, we can say, okay, based on the stars I see in that galaxy, I know how far away that galaxy is. And then we learn of other methods that we can detect how even galaxies where we can't see individual stars, we know how far away they are. So you say, okay, we have all this, and we also see that the further away a galaxy is, the more it's light where, you know, light is, you know, you have a wavelength and that defines certain properties of this light. The galaxy, the farther away it is, the longer its wavelength of light. And this seems to be universal on average. There's a little bit of what we call scatter or uncertainty where, okay, some things at the same distance, the wavelengths are a little shorter or a little longer, but by and large, the farther away you go, the longer that wavelength is. Why? So in the early stages of science, we said, okay, look, there are many explanations. Maybe something happens where the light loses energy and gets tired. Or maybe it's because in uh, general relativity, the expanding universe, light gets emitted and the universe expands, uh, it's going to stretch the wavelength of that light. And you go through all the possible explanations and then you say, okay, what are the different observations I can make? I can see if the light from distance objects is blurred 
or whether it's just as crisp far away. And that'll tell you whether your light's getting tired or not. You can say, so there are all these tests you can do for all these different ideas. The expanding universe, once we figured out that is a general relativity thing, it is like a, uh, I think of it like a loaf of raisin bread where you have the individual raisins Mm -hmm. inside a leavening loaf. The individual raisins are like stars and galaxies, but the space between them is the expanding dough. So then you say, okay, if that's what's happening and the universe is expanding, what was it like in the past? Was it, if it's expanding now and things are getting farther apart, does that mean in the past it was smaller and denser and the wavelength of light was shorter? That's where the idea of the Big Bang comes from. So you say, okay, if this is true, then what would happen if I looked back in time? I would see that galaxies earlier on, farther away, It would be like looking back in time, right? If something, if light takes a billion years to reach my eyes from when it's emitted, then I'm looking back a billion years in time. 10 billion, same thing. So the farther away we look, the galaxies, they are smaller and they have younger stars in them and they are less evolved. And so you say, oh, they really do look younger. It's like sort of, uh, it's sort of like looking at a human that's like so far away that you actually see them when they're a baby. That's what we're seeing with the distant universe. We're seeing some of these galaxies like when they're a baby, but then you say, okay, well, what if we go back to a time when there were no stars and galaxies, what happens then? And you'll say, well, if your universe is smaller then the wavelength of light's gotten stretched less, so it's shorter wavelength still. At some point, you get so energetic that you start kicking electrons off of atoms. So that means there should be a time as the universe expands and cools where you're, you form neutral atoms. You cool enough, this radiation gets long enough in wavelength that you can form atoms without kicking electrons off. So you say, oh, What's the observable consequence of that? And you say, oh, there should be some radiation left over with a particular spectrum and a particular energy density. And today, its wavelengths should be very long. And we found this in the 1960s. And that was an observation that people said, oh, well, that indicates the Big Bang. What else? And you go back even further and you say, oh, well, you would have blown atomic nuclei apart. So there should come a time where you form the first atomic nuclei. And guess what? When we find clouds of gas and we found them that have never formed stars ever, what's in there? It's not all hydrogen. About 25% of it is helium and a tiny bit of it is lithium. And we say, oh, well, that's because in the early stages, like maybe when the universe was just three or four minutes old, we started forming these atomic nuclei. So we can see them today. Even though you can't observe everything you want directly, there's this wonderful interplay between theory and experiment or observation where what you've seen so far helps inform you based on the laws we know, what do I look for next to see how the universe is? Then I go out and I make those observations, I make those measurements, I do those experiments, and it tells me the universe is consistent with this and not consistent with that. So we rule that out. And then, okay, what else? And you look deeper into this and you say, okay, not consistent with this, but it is consistent with these. 
And that's sort of how we do it is we say, what can I observe? What can I look at? What can I measure to tell me what the universe is like? And so this is how we do it. We we find out information about the universe by asking the universe questions about itself and listening to those answers. And 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 from what it sounds like also, and, and one of my favorite definitions of science is that science is what helps us become progressively less wrong. Um, it's not a collection of facts that are eternally true, but being able to say, this is what I think is going to happen. And let me see what is, what is nature telling me? What is the universe telling me? Oh, I was wrong. Let me revise this a little bit. Or well, maybe my instrumentation was, was incorrect, but science is not a collection of immutable facts. It's a, it's a process by which we see, okay, I was correct here or I was mildly incorrect here. It's not that Newton is wrong. It's that we've been able to build off of what Newton taught us 500 years ago, 600 years ago. Yeah. And I think I I would go as far as to say, like, don't discount the facts. Science isn't saying, like, don't look at the facts. Science is definitely that full suite of facts that we have, but it's also more than that. It's also this process that builds upon itself to to use a, a similar quote, I like that one, by the way, uh, to use a similar one, I like what Isaac Asimov had to say about um, the flat earth versus a spherical earth. He said something like, um, you know, some people said the earth was flat, some people said the earth was round. Um, today, we know that the earth isn't quite a sphere, that it's a oblate spheroid where it's a little compressed at the poles and it bulges a little at the equators and it has its own topology because the earth's crust floats atop the mantle and you have uh, depressions and trenches and subduction. You have all these complicated things happening. So no, the earth isn't flat, but it's also not a sphere. But if you think that saying the earth is flat is the same level of wrong as saying the earth is a sphere, then you haven't understood the first thing about science at all, because it is this progression. And what we generally do when we practice science is we take the simplest simplification of what's out there that still captures all of the physical phenomena that we're interested in to the typical person who's going to be standing on the moon, looking at the earth, saying the earth is a sphere is pretty good. Saying the sun is a sphere is even better. Uh, But if someone is at the bottom of Mount Everest and they're looking up at the top of Mount Everest and that's where they want to go, uh, saying the earth is a sphere might not be the most relevant thing to that person at that moment in time. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting question um, because it's also where you where you stand depends on where you sit and what's, what are you trying to be able to, to learn and grow and our instrumentation and what we've been able to know about the universe has, has grown. And I'm thinking particularly about what, what are called exoplanets, um, which are people really didn't know much about until before what, like 2006, 2007, there were a handful of them. And then in 2009, if I'm remembering, um, that's really when the Hubble telescope tried to find more and more exoplanets. And now we're finding maybe hundreds. I know there, there, there are you know dozens and dozens and dozens of these exoplanets, and and so the 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 instrumentation has allowed us to be able to to find different kinds of um, 
what planets are able to do. And it, and it raises some, I think, some very big existential questions of, wait a minute, are we unique? Are we special? You know, what is, what, what does this mean if we end up finding all of these other planets that, that orbit different stars? And what will happen if we find life, find intelligent life? You know, these are all different questions. I'm curious as to either your, your personal reaction to some of these pieces or what you're seeing in the astrophysics community on these questions. Right. So, uh, so to talk a little bit about exoplanets, right, I think it's really important to, if we were to go back in time, like 30 years, this was all only speculation. We hadn't discovered any planets outside of our solar system that we could robustly say, oh, here is a planet orbiting another star. We, we didn't have any. We started to see them, not with the Hubble Space Telescope, but by watching these stars very closely. And what you see periodically, if you have a star with a planet orbiting it, we, we tell ourselves this, just to go back to what we talked about earlier, right? You could say, oh yeah, planets, they move about their suns in ellipses, right? But that's not really what's happening. What's happening is the planet and the star are both orbiting their center of mass, and if the planet is much less massive than the star, the star is only going to move a little bit. But what happens is as this star moves around in a tiny little circle, you can't really tell the side-to-side -side motion, but you can tell the forward and backward motion because when it moves towards you, the light gets blue shifted, shifted towards shorter wavelength. And when it moves away from you, uh, did I, away from you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then you start to see, oh, it's shifted to longer wavelengths. This is the same phenomenon that uh, when you hear the ice cream truck in the summer and it's driving towards you, uh, it sounds higher pitched. And then when it's driving away from you, it sounds lower pitched. That same thing happens to light. It happens to all waves. Well, that back and forth motion that we see periodically, we used to call that the stellar wobble method. And you say, okay, well, what's this most sensitive to, right? It's going to be most sensitive to a big mass planet around a star that it's very close to. And those were the first planets we started to see. We started calling them hot Jupiters. And we started to ask, oh, does this mean that our solar system is weird and that lots of these stars actually have Jupiter-sized planets interior to where the orbit of Mercury would be? No, those are just the ones we could see first. The big explosion that you're talking about happened when NASA launched and started operating the Kepler mission. Kep and that Kep used a wholly new technique. They said, okay, you have all these stars and we're going to look at more than 100,000 of them all at once. Every once in a while, there's going to be a planet that's orbiting that star that passes across the face of that star's disk. We call that the transit method. So you're going to see the flux from the star is constant, and then it dips, and then it stays down here, and then it goes back up to where it was. And if it does this over and over and over again, we start to say that's a planet. And then we do follow-up observations, and we say, what's the mass of that planet, and what's its period? And, and we start making more observations of it. We have over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets right now. Um, we are still, and I'll just be honest with everyone here, we're still a generation away in telescopes. We still need more powerful telescopes if we want to start finding and characterizing Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. 
But this question cannot be ignored anymore. We have a good idea of what types of planets are out there in the universe, that almost all stars have planets around them, and what these different sizes and masses and distributions of planets look like. We, we can pretty firmly say there are probably billions of Earth-sized, Earth-temperature planets out there in our galaxy. So now, when you start asking questions about if we're alone, is there life in the universe, we're not coming at it from the perspective we were 30 years ago, where we're like, oh, well, based on what we see here, there's probably other stuff like it out there. We've actually started to learn what are the other solar systems out there like? What do they look like? What are the distributions of them like? And we've started to learn, you know, not just but yeah, Earth-like worlds might be common, but what does it mean to be Earth-like? What are the important qualities? What types of stars have different criteria to them where an Earth-like chemistry or biochemistry could exist? And what possibilities are out there where maybe there's life, maybe there's even intelligent life in an environment that's different than Earth? We have to consider the possibility that life on Earth might not even be the most common form of life or even intelligent life out there in the universe. And, and that's, I know that there's been some, some um, discussion about this. You know, there have been a couple of uh, time, New York Times articles and, uh, and Scientific American that there's, uh, I know there's a, an astrophysicist who's been, been uh, talking about a little bit of, of intelligent life. But I also know there's some criticism of, of, uh, of, of what he's presenting here. Um, for those of us who don't really know the ins and outs of, of what's happening of, of these, these arguments of, well, clearly we've been visited by extraterrestrials versus, wait a second, wait, what do we actually know? What's the, what's the tension there? What's, what's going on in, the, in, in that conversation of, of, are we really alone? Are we really unique? And, and, and what does it mean to be able to say, wait a second, there's lots of intelligent life out there. But again, it comes to that question of how do we, how do we know, right? What's the difference between science and science fiction? Well, so there's this question, right, about, um, there's this twofold question about how do we talk when we're scientists talking to other people in our field in a professional capacity? And then there's the question of, and how do we do it differently when we talk to the general public, because when we talk amongst ourselves, we are happy to entertain wild ideas, speculative ideas, and pretty out there ideas. We, we encourage this, right? What we do is we say, okay, look, we have this data. This is the data we have, and we're going to come up with all the different possible explanations for it. We're also going to come up with some fantastic explanations, not fantastic, really good, but fantastic as like, fantasy land, but in principle, there's a way to distinguish what signature would this have if it were this fantastic idea versus this more mundane idea. Now, when we talk to the general public, we try to be very careful about saying, okay, we're going to speculate that this is what this is, but here's what's established, and we want to make sure that we aren't crying wolf 
We want to make sure that we're not misrepresenting. We don't want to get everyone's hopes up to say like, we found aliens. We found life on Mars. We found like all of these claims have been made countless times by scientists, non-scientists, conspiracy theorists, like all over the map. Every time it's either been someone pulling a hoax or a scam or it's been someone fooling themselves. So when we present as scientists results to the general public, we try very hard to be careful because we recognize how valuable the enterprise of science is to humanity and we do not want to undermine the public trust in science. It might get someone temporarily excited if you make some spectacular claim, but if you make a spectacular claim and it's wrong and you make a spectacular claim and it's wrong and you make a, they start to lose trust. And science, I would argue, is perhaps the most trustworthy method we have of gaining knowledge about the world that human civilization has ever developed. It's the most successful enterprise we've ever engaged in. So, when we communicate things to the general public, if we are speculating, we want to make it very clear this is speculation. We do not have the evidence to draw this conclusion. So what's been happening in the popular press is, um, in to, for a little bit of a backstory, all of the objects we have seen in the sky um, have either been far away out of our solar system and they stay far away or they've been solar system objects that originated within our solar system and in 2017 we found the first object that passed through our solar system that very clearly from where it came in how fast it came in and where it left that came from beyond our solar system passed through our solar system and left our solar system again. It's in the process of leaving because space is big. It takes a while. But um, but it did this, right? It comes in and we see it and we say, oh, wow, when this thing gets far away from the sun, how fast will it be moving? If it originated within our solar system, the answer is, well, maybe it could move at like speeds up to one kilometer per second. Maybe if Jupiter kicked it real hard, maybe you get up to like two kilometers a second. This thing is moving out there at 26 kilometers a second. It's very clearly different from everything else. It was small. It was barely able to be detected with our big telescopes. It was faint and it had a couple of odd properties to it. One is that its brightness, it would get much brighter and much fainter and much brighter and much fainter periodically. So that's led to questions of, ooh, is one side of it darkened maybe, like Saturn's moon Iapetus? Is it maybe an elongated object that's spinning? So sometimes you see a large amount of it and sometimes you see a small amount of it and that's why its brightness varies. Is it shaped like a pancake where sometimes you get a big disc and sometimes you just get a thin line? Um, so, and, and also um, if you do all of like the gravity calculations and you say how fast should it have been accelerating, there's just this tiny bit of extra acceleration uh, that's consistent with what we see for things like comets where they outgas a little bit. One side heats up, gas comes off and 
it accelerates away from the sun. Small extra acceleration, I think it was about five microns per second squared. So tiny, tiny extra acceleration, but over cosmic distances that adds up and we can measure it. But that's it. That's all we knew about that object. So when you're a conservative scientist who, you know, not politically, but right. intellectually, you want to say, okay, well, what could this object have been? Was it, was it an oddly shaped thing? Maybe it had been weathered by its journey through interstellar space. Is it some sort of a nitrogen iceberg where something like smashed into a Pluto-like object and kicked all these icebergs up and one of those passed through and that's why it looked the way it did? So we have all these ideas. And one of the more fantastic ideas that's been thrown out is, well, you know what? What if we looked past the physical explanations of the normal objects we expect to be out there, but we considered the possibility that this is an extraterrestrial object put there by an advanced extraterrestrial civilization to explore the interesting solar system of Earth? Because now that we can do exoplanet studies, maybe someone across the galaxy is doing exoplanet studies on us and said, that's an interesting planet. Look at all the oxygen in that atmosphere. Look at the continents and the oceans and the clouds. And look at look at all the things that are going on over there. Maybe they can, even if they're close enough, they can see that at night, the back half of our Earth is still lit up because we have artificial lighting. Maybe they could detect chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere and say, oh, yeah, only quasi-intelligent species make those, you know, when they put the white rain in their hair. Back when I had hair, um, it was good stuff. So there are all sorts of questions that you can ask, that you can look for, and maybe someone sent something here speculative, fantastic, but plausible. But then you take these ideas and you say, well, what suppositions am I going to advance to the public? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to share with people? And, you know, understandably, the idea of maybe it's an alien thing, uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of scientific traction because of how poor the data is compared to what would be necessary to draw that conclusion. And we don't have enough data to draw that conclusion. So what we say instead is, okay, look, what we really need to do is we need to start finding large numbers of these objects to characterize them, to measure them better, and to understand what it actually is that's out there. We're going to look at it in every way we can to the limits of the instruments we have. Um, but but we can't really draw any more conclusions about this one object. It's already farther away than it's been since we found it. And, you know, we had another object come through and that one was much more comet-like than this one. It was bigger. It had a big tail and clearly comet-like. So, but that's it. We only have these two objects. One looks like a comet. One looks is this tiny little weirdo. Okay. Um, what we have going on right now is someone has a hypothesis of a fantastic explanation and is, um, I would say, advancing it with far more confidence to the general public than the evidence warrants. And so there's a little bit of uh, pushback within the field of why is this person misrepresenting science as we do it to the general public? Um, and that's, that's sort of what's going on with that. But we don't really have good evidence for intelligent extraterrestrials. We certainly, you know, we have an object. 
What is it? Well, here are some leading ideas and here's a fringe idea. And we don't have enough data to tell them apart right now. And that's the whole story. I, I wish it was more interesting. Well, but you, you know, you raise an interesting question and, and links to something that I read uh, that, that you wrote a few months ago, um, which said you should not you should not quote unquote do your own research when it comes to science, which I think this this links to questions of health and, and COVID-19 or climate change or all sorts of different pieces where there is some clear scientific uh, consensus, but the way it gets communicated to the public, there's there's a disconnect sometimes that happens. And for those of us who are essentially lay people when it comes to science, we just need to trust the people who tell us, right? And we trust the people that we trust. And so, um, you know, coming back from this place of, of, of the scientific community being so trusted, and that is, there's a tremendous responsibility of the scientific community to, to, to warrant that trust. And yet, there's not the scientific community, right? Everyone has their own particular agenda and perspective in this kind of way, but, but one or two people can say something um, and, and seem to represent the scientific community, but it totally undermines the trust in, in what the scientific community has really tried to build up over, over decades and decades. Um, and so how do we understand, as, as lay people, how can we understand and distinguish accurate science from inaccurate science? How do we know when, when there's an internal debate within the scientific community? And that's, that's what's happening here. It's not that they don't know. It's that there's, there's an internal debate. Um, how do we as lay people understand this, this distinction between um, science where there's a lot of, of um, accepted results versus what are still a little bit more speculative or that we're still figuring out here? This, this is a really good question, and I think this is a really difficult question for those of us who, who really care about the scientific truth getting out in the world and, and in everyone, you know, reaping the benefits that our scientific knowledge can give us. Because at the same time that you have more and deeper scientific knowledge than at any point in human history, you also have a large number of very prominent people who are actively working to undermine that trust because they have their own agenda, whether it's for personal benefit or financial benefit or to benefit someone else that you're beholden to, right? You, you worry about all of these things. So there are a few rules that I would sort of recommend that you start following if you want to figure this out for yourself. Um, the first rule is you have to remember when you are a scientist, if there is a hypothesis that you know you that is worth considering, um, your first goal as a scientist is to throw everything you can at that hypothesis to try and knock it down, to try and blow it over, to try and show that this hypothesis is no good. You want to take that hypothesis and challenge it as hard as you can with the facts, with the data we've collected, you want to make sure that hypothesis can stand up to the full suite of data we've collected. Uh, so the first thing that you want to do is you want to say, okay, is the person presenting this 
have they demonstrated that? Have they demonstrated that I am trying to knock this hypothesis down, that I am trying to look at all the ways this could be wrong and finding, oh no, when I test it this way, it passes that test. Oh no, when it passes this way, it passes also. And I, I can't, I can't get rid of this hypothesis. It's super good. Um, are they, um, are they being fair in the sense that they are subjecting the view that they're purporting to the same level of scrutiny that they're taking, uh, you know, what they are presenting as contrarian views? Are, are they being fair and balanced in their scrutiny? Or are they only being overly scrutinous of one perspective and not of the other? Um, for me, I keep this in mind all the time because I sort of realize, you know, being a scientist and being involved in the community of scientists, that this is kind of how everyone works. If, you know, if you have a hypothesis and I'm like, oh, that's not right, I'm going to try and knock it down. And so are hundreds or maybe thousands of other scientists. If your idea is deemed interesting enough to investigate and we investigate it, we're going to try to knock it down. When we talk about a thing like a scientific consensus, I want to be very clear. Science is not like law school. It's not like having an argument with your friends or your family. You don't win when you convince everyone else, right? This is not how you do it. It's not, oh, the you know, well, Ethan's not very smart and his idea is not very good, but he's a good arguer. So he's going to convince us all that this is true. No, that's not how it works in science because there are quantifiable tests we can perform. There is a level of scrutiny we can apply. And only if my idea on its own merits stands up to all that scrutiny while the other competing ideas all fall away. Only if I meet these three criteria, I'm going to lay them out for you. One is your idea has to be able to reproduce all the ex all the successes of the idea that you're seeking to replace, right? There's a consensus idea. Everyone's like, this is good. This is useful. I can't find places where it's wrong or it's the best approximation of reality we have. If you want to make a better one, you have to first reproduce all the successes in all the circumstances of that previous model. Second thing, there has to be something you can point to where this old model doesn't work, but your model does. So that's the second thing is you need a motivation for why I go to this next level. What does this extra thing explain that the current consensus model doesn't. And the third thing, and this is the toughest challenge, this is the one you should always be on the lookout for, is if you pass those first two tests, and only if you pass those first two tests do you move on to the third. The third one is, now, is there something where I can take the old prediction and I can take the new prediction and I can tease out something that should be different between these two that we haven't measured yet. So I can go out and measure it and tell, are these two things different? Which one is it? Is it either of them? Is one right and what wrong? That's how we get a scientific consensus is when the evidence weighs in overwhelmingly in favor of a new idea. When all three criteria are met, that's when Bam, that's when the consensus shifts. 
that's when like, okay, there's really only this. This is the best explanation for the full suite of observables that we have. As a lay person, that's very hard to do because you don't have that expertise. But an excellent proxy for that is to go to a wide variety of experts in that field and ask them if you can find, like if you go and ask 10 different experts in the field what they think of this idea and nine to 10 of them are all pretty certain that this is, this is correct, that this is accepted, that this is the best explanation of what's out there. That's, that's an excellent proxy for, oh, this is, this is probably right. The experts on this probably agree. Uh, I, I don't mean like you go ask five dentists and four of them tell you to chew sugar-free gum. I mean, no, you, you're asking some real bona fide experts. You're putting the legwork in and they're all happy to explain to you what they know and how they know it. The, the claims you want to look out for is if someone's crying conspiracy, if someone's crying, they're being suppressed by the establishment. I, I have, you know, yes, there are a few historical examples. And when I say historical, I mean, uh, I'm using my grandmother's definition of if it happened more than 10 years before I was born, it's old. Um, so there are historical things I can point to to say, yeah, but really there haven't been any major things that have had that happen, at least in my field in the last 50 years. There's really no things where, you know, oh, everyone thought this one thing until one person came along and they revolutionized everything. No, like the field was already moving in that direction and people were exploring these things and one person made an important breakthrough and that led us all to go further down this path. But that's not the same thing as, oh, well, no one, but the lone genius came out of nowhere. And hey, guess what? He's got a little bottle of pills to sell us. And then we can all be, there, there are some things to look out for. Um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because as, as you're talking, one question that I get all the time, which is very simple question is, why are so many Jews scientists? Is, which is a question that you can give all sorts of different reasons for this. But, but my thinking in a lot of ways is that the process of science matches fairly closely with the way that the rabbis argued in the Talmud. And, and when the rabbis listed their arguments, first of all, they always had to quote whatever it was in the name of somebody else. They couldn't just say, I said this. They had to say, here's who I'm quoting and why. So that was that was the first piece. And, the, and, and another is they would always record the minority opinion in case, you know what, they said something and, you know, we want to record all the process of this so that if anyone finds a, an incorrect piece we can we can reconstruct it and then there was always a, a the the last pieces the phrases tanu rabbanan or and the rabbis agreed and that was just sort of the general consensus that okay all of the experts who have studied this particular piece of jewish law they've agreed and that's we're going to follow this because these are the experts who have agreed in this way but we're also going to make sure that we show our process and and the minority pieces and why we might be wrong and i think that process um is is very much what science is and i think there's there's a lot of overlap at least in terms of the the thought process between the sort of talmudic discussion and the way science is done you know i think i think there's an important point to be made here because there is this sort of opinion uh and it's usually bandied about by contrarians in a field um 
or outsiders to a field who want their ideas to be taken seriously, which is to say they, they always say like, oh, but I'm not part of the mainstream thought, so my ideas are being suppressed. My ideas aren't being recorded. My ideas aren't being taken seriously. There is a huge difference between your idea is being dismissed for no good reason and your idea is being dismissed because we have the evidence that tells us you must dismiss this idea if you want to be responsible or because you are making an extraordinary claim for the existence of something that doesn't have the supporting evidence to back up its existence. Um, and those, those are very different things from actual suppression. Um, historically, I think it's incredibly interesting to see how some ideas that initially were brought up uh, for reasons that were later like, oh, no, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have included that. Uh, and then decades later, that idea makes a comeback in a new context. Um, I would say one of the most famous examples of that is when we had the expanding universe before we had the expanding universe. Einstein put out his theory of general relativity. And when he did, he said, oh, no, there's a problem. If I apply this to the whole universe, my universe is unstable. What's going to happen if I have a universe and it's full of masses, the masses are all going to gravitationally attract each other and it's going to collapse. It's going to collapse into a black hole. So what did Einstein do? Did he say, oh, and therefore the universe must be expanding so that these things are moving away and they won't collapse? No, he thought that was absurd. So instead, what he did was he said, oh, I'm going to put in what I call a cosmological constant to repel everything so it just balances perfectly. And all of Einstein's peers looked at that and they were like, Einstein, this is a terrible idea. Your solution is unstable. You have to be perfectly here. And if one thing moves a tiny bit this way or this way, the whole thing either collapses or nope, it just collapses. It always collapses. What'd you do? Uh, this is not the solution. So we discovered the expanding universe with the data. Cosmological constant, Einstein calls it his greatest blunder. But guess what? 60, 70 years later, we discover actually the rate that the universe is expanding. It requires something more than what we see out there. What's the one thing that's consistent with what we observe? Guess what? It's the cosmological constant making a comeback. So it is important that we examine these wild ideas, these speculative ideas, that we sometimes re-examine discredited ideas, knowing how you got to be where you are today is an incredibly useful resource in helping you navigate where you go into the future. I, I'm a huge fan of telling young scientists uh, who are junior in the field that what you are working on is not a waste because what you are doing with whatever you are working on is you are putting new tools in your toolbox. You are going to be uniquely valuable if your toolkit is different than everyone else's toolkit. So don't be upset that you spent time learning something that turned out not to be useful in one regard, because it may turn out to be uniquely useful down the road. Well, so there was a question that, that came up that I want to address that I think is one that 
that is uh, that will be for both of us, you from a from a more scientific perspective and me from a more theological perspective. But the question was, um, how do we reconcile uh, the the Torah, you know, the the five books of, of Moses and 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 the story of the Jewish people, which is Earth based, and the potential of life on other planets in the galaxy or the universe that would have its own history and story because every planet would have its own history, geology, life, stories. Would they have their own version of that or would it have to be earth-based? And and I think, you know, I'm, I'm happy to answer that in a moment about from, from a theological perspective, but I wonder, because, you know, you've talked a lot about science fiction and, 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 and I know you're a big fan of Star Trek also, that are there pieces of this, the science and the story? Um, how do they interplay? How do they interact in this kind of way? So this is a really interesting question, right? Because you're, on the one hand, you're asking me like, okay, how, how does like, you know, our thoughts about the future uh, inform how we investigate the universe and bring science to advance and bring technologies to fruition. Um, but on the other hand, you're also asking me to speculate about how it might happen elsewhere. And I'm really curious about that too, because when I think about, okay, if I say, when we start to scientifically investigate the universe, one of the remarkable things we learn is that it should be the same for everyone everywhere. If I were to, uh, you know, have my mind wiped and all of humanity were to have our minds wiped um, and all of our knowledge were wiped out, um, we could perform whatever scientific investigations we could perform about the world and universe around us. And we would come assuming we did it responsibly up until this point And we did it responsibly again, the next time we did it, we would come to the same conclusions. We would have the universe tell us the same story about itself that it's always told us. This is very different than if we're not approaching it scientifically. If we are approaching this from any other perspective, we can get whatever story we choose to tell based on whatever experiences or however we make our decisions about it. So when I say like, okay, um, you know, would there be an order to technologies? Yeah, you'd, you'd probably invent like a water wheel before you invented a transistor, but, uh, but maybe not. Maybe you would invent some sort of gate that functioned like a transistor before, you know, maybe you live on a world where water doesn't flow. Maybe you live on a world where, you know, um, you don't have building materials to build something like a water wheel. Maybe you live on a very rocky world that doesn't grow things like trees or malleable materials. Uh, maybe you live on a metal poor world that doesn't have lots of heavy metals, but somehow your biology still performs all the functions it needs. Um, so I think it's important to be aware of the level of our ignorance about how life develops and evolves elsewhere to stay open to those possibilities. But I think it's also important to recognize for ourselves that we, we do, we have this uniquely valuable knowledge that we gain by approaching the world scientifically. And if 
other places approach this scientifically, they would be able to discover the same types of rules, the same types of rules, but not the rules we make for ourselves. If there isn't a scientific basis in it that's universal, you're not necessarily going to draw the same conclusions. For example, um, you know, if we had even slightly different physiology, um, I doubt that we would have had rules against eating pork because you wouldn't have gotten sick from eating undercooked pork. Right. And I think, and, and I think the other piece too of, you know, one of the, one of the things that often comes up of the science of, of psychology, which is in and of itself, a, a scientific process, right? It, it is, there is a, a methodology and yet there's also challenges of our, our psychological experiments replicable. And there's a whole piece in the, in the, in the replica, replicability crisis, they're calling it in, in psychology. Um, you know, you could recreate a lot of the physics and the chemistry that probably would be the same regardless if we do this responsibly, but the psychology is different. And, and I think one of the interesting things is that our, potentially our biology, but certainly our psychology are very culturally rooted. And so our, from, from where, from where Judaism comes from and our, and our texts and our religious traditions, those are rooted in a particular culture. So we could recreate the big bang. And, and if we do, or if we were to have our minds wiped, we would understand, I think that that we're 13.8 billion years and here's how the chemistry happened. But I think the stories would change. I think that the, the elements of what, um, what our laws would be um, would be different because I think the biology would be different. The psychology would be different. I think that's going to be an interesting question. And, um, and this person too raised this, this piece of, of, you know, what, what may happen as um, you know, if people end up, for example, living on Mars, what's going to happen about some of the different rules? Cause there are so many rules that happen in Judaism around astronomy and when is the sun going to set and sun, when is it going to rise? And when are the, when are the moons here? And if you're living it on Mars, Mars or living on, on the International Space Station, all those different things are going to change. And I think they're they're different of what a scientific law or rule is versus a, a cultural law or rule. And I think that's important to tease those out. I, I would agree with that. I would also point out that a lot of the phenomenon that we ascribed meaning to in our pre-scientific days um, you know, they're, they may be more easily observable things, but they may be less important things. For example, if you have humans living on Mars, uh, the two moons of Mars are very different than the moon on Earth. Um, I imagine that any calendar, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to use a lunar calendar on Mars. But if we did, it would look very different than the lunar calendar we use on Earth. Um, a year on Mars is longer than a year on Earth. Gravity on Mars is different than gravity on Earth. Um, the number of hours in a day is close to what it is on Earth, but it's different enough that if you try and keep people on the same clock, uh, it gets off. So, so much so that when people work on the Mars rovers, they have to live their lives not on days and nights, but on souls, on Martian days, which are an annoying, I think, 37 minutes yeah. longer than Earth days. So um, you have people on call for like a week or two where they're 
up at weird hours. Like they're waking up at 3 a.m. And then the next day they're waking up at 4 a.m. And it's weird stuff. <laughs> well, you know, I'd, I'd love to spend just a minute or two on some of, of what you also talk about, about, about fiction and stories. I think, you know, so much of, of one reason that, for example, the stories of Genesis still resonate is not because they're scientifically accurate, because for me, they're not scientifically accurate. Genesis was not written to be a science textbook, but it still has this resonance because there's the poetry and the awe and the wonder and the majesty and the, and the, and the, interaction that we have with the natural world and with with the rest of the universe and and if this is a for those of us who who identify this way who feel a connection with the divine in some way that that the story often drives this desire for exploration and wonder and majesty where do you, where do you see the the power of the non-scientific of all of the 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 stories that, that come in, how does that help us engage with what's actually scientifically accurate? You know, this is, this is an important thing that I, I will say, I don't think people necessarily value this enough, that there are two parts to science. There's this, this careful part that I've been emphasizing where you, you scrutinize everything and you confront it with the data and you try to knock your hypothesis down. But before that, there is this imagination phase where you are supposed to go off and entertain every wild idea you have. And a lot of those wild ideas are inspired by stories that we have told each other for since time immemorial. Um, the idea of the Big Bang uh, was first thought up in its in some form by uh, George Lemaitre, who was a Catholic priest, you know, steeped in the Judeo-Christian you know, tradition of assuming that the universe had a origin, that the universe had a beginning. And so for the idea that, oh, there would be this like primeval thing that everything grew from, um, that was something where uh, a lot of the atheists in Britain recoiled from that. There was this alternative to the Big Bang called the steady state theory that in many ways was ideologically preferred because it was, you know, it wasn't polluted by this, you know, history of, you know, religious intercession in, uh, in science. And yet it turned out on the merits when you examine it, that wild idea that some people would have discounted because it was steeped with religious uh, subtext, it actually turned out to be correct. So I don't think that um, throwing out ideas is necessarily good uh, until you have established that this idea is no longer valid. And I think furthermore, that I really liked what you said about, um, you didn't use the word, but I, I view it as a metaphor mm -hmm. that when you sort of uh, read something and you allow it to be a metaphorical story rather than a literal story, um, you open up this possibility that you can relate to it. For me personally, I don't mind sharing. Uh, I always really enjoyed the story of Genesis myself. And I always looked at it as, leaving the Garden of Eden, getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, um, it wasn't a punishment. It was the beginning of humanity. It was saying, you are not animals 
anymore, or you're not only animals anymore. You're something more than that. You have eaten of the fruit of knowledge. You can learn about the world. It is not a crime that you did this, but rather it was something that separates you from the rest of the natural world. Use the gifts that you have. And and you know that's I, I I very much agree and 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 I know in in a lot of Jewish tradition views uh, the the expulsion of of from the Garden of Eden is actually not a punishment it's not a sin but that's exactly what it is that in many ways the Garden of Eden was our infancy where all our needs were taken care of and we didn't have to think so much and 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 then as we as we grow as as we human beings grow up and we recognize wait a minute, I've got to be able to decide what's right and wrong. I've got to be able to use technology and, and to be able to, to use nature, but use it responsibly. Um, that's a, that's a lifelong process of how do I, how do I gain knowledge and how do I use that knowledge? And that's a lifelong struggle to be, to be able to grapple with. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's another important point too, is that if you have, it in you, if you have the mental energy in you, um, the closer you examine something, the more times you go back to something to re-examine it, uh, the more you discover there is to get out of it because you grow and you change and you learn. And when you revisit something, uh, you can often find a new relevance uh, in it for your life and your thoughts. And that's true in science. And I think it's true in our personal lives as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sacred Science, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Ethan Siegel. You can find him on Twitter at Starts With a Bang. Our guest on our next episode will be Samuel Arbusman, a complexity scientist and research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit Sinai and Synapses' website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses, on Twitter at Sinai Synapses, or me at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at judaismunbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. And Kol Tuv, all good things.